You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? This is Dr. K from Uzima Health and Wellness. And tonight I'm bringing you Dr. Vanessa Freeman, a psychiatrist in the United States military, the Army. And she will do her disclaimer and we will start the show with talking to her about thoughts along the way as we uh, understand better how a dynamic sister becomes a psychiatrist. We definitely need more in this time of mental health awareness and gun violence increase. And uh, we definitely need uh, people like Dr. Freeman to come forth and tell not just uh, about diseases, but how they developed a passion to even become a psychiatrist. So Dr. Vanessa Freeman, welcome to the show. And I'm gonna give you a minute to make your disclaimer. Thank you so much. So yes, I am a part of the military. I am a psychiatrist for the Army, but the opinions that I share here on the show are my opinions that do not re- represent the United States government, the Department of Defense, or the Army. Thank you so much. And again, this is uh, called uh, Thoughts Along the Way, and I, I have another military active duty person that to share with me his life story. So I hope that uh, that is uh, pleasing to uh, the audience and pleasing to your community service engagement component of whatever you do and whatever occupation you're in. So, Dr. Freeman, uh, we met in the operating area of Walter Reed and we got to know each other. It was such a delight to finally to meet you. You told me you were from Miami because I was curious about you. And that's what this is about. You were are from Miami originally, born and raised? Uh, not born and raised, but I claim Miami because I pretty much grew up okay. in Miami. I'm originally from uh, Chicago, Illinois, outside of Chicago. I gotta say, suburbs of Chicago. Okay, you're from the Yes, and then I moved down to Miami. That's a big change. That's a big change culturally, yes? Yes, definitely. definitely. And how old were you when you made that change? I was eight. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But enough to remember a little bit about Chicago? Yeah, I mean, the only thing the only thing I really remember is the snow. I remember some of the people that I used to be with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't remember that much. I've mm-hmm. gone back as an adult and mm-hmm. it's, it feels very different um, okay. than what it was when I was little. Mm-hmm. But Miami made me, so I claim Miami. Okay, so tell me about a little girl growing up in Miami. You know, people have their thoughts about Miami. When we go, we're going to for the beach and South Beach and the parties. Tell me, and I was curious about this from the day we met, what's it like growing up in Miami? You know, it is, I don't even know what word I would put on it. I think it, growing up in Miami is an experience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's a unique experience because Miami is one of the ports of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, so many different kinds of people Mm -hmm. go through Miami. Mm -hmm. So it's a very diverse environment and growing up there, I learned, and also being able to compare it to Illinois, I was able to see that difference in culture where you're seeing people from all over the place, all mm-hmm. over the countries, the Caribbean. Um, you see Black people, but they can be from everywhere versus in Illinois, it's usually just that that uh, dichotomous mm-hmm. thing where it's like you're white or you're not. Mm-hmm. Miami... You could be anything and everything. And so it was it was nice growing so, up down there. Good food, good people. And you could be anything and everything. But when I met you, you said, no, I'm black. 
I appreciate that, but I didn't take that for granted. I mean, I think that, you know, growing up in Miami, you could have been Dominican, Haitian, a Byron. I mean, and so tell me about, you know, your family. And do you get that in Miami where people may think that you're from South America or the Caribbean? And you say, no, I'm from Chicago. Yeah, all the time. I'm, uh, I guess, the ambiguous, you never know what I could be. So yeah, I living in Miami, people would see me and think that I would speak Spanish. It's all it's all good. I learned because I lived down there and I mm-hmm. ate everything. Mm-hmm. I'm honorary every basically honorary most of the cultures there. Um mm-hmm. because I grew up in and learned um mm-hmm. the accent and and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think it was a an experience I feel that made me versatile mm-hmm. and, and very comfortable with many different cultures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I will say, however, I did feel an instant connection to you. So I had like, I was like, black girl magic, yay. You know, so, <laughs> so, so happy to meet you. And you went to Cornell. So I have some friends whose daughters have gone to Cornell and they, they have some mixed reviews. Um, you know, I've been to Cornell. Tell me about your experience there and why you chose Cornell, besides the fact that it's an Ivy League. I guess it's a funny story. One of the babysitters that I had growing up, mm-hmm. she went to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember what her major was. I want to say it was in business or ILR or something like that. But my babysitter was my exposure to, mm-hmm. and she was someone that we met from church, just someone from church. And she was my exposure really to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And so when she left, I'm like, where is Shirley going? You know, and so then I looked up Cornell. So that was like, it became an option for me. And then when I got a little older, I was probably about 10 around that time. Mm-hmm. When I got a little older, um, I based my decision on one, what field I was trying to go into. And mm-hmm. I was interested in nutrition. Cornell happened to be the number one school for nutritional sciences. So I went there. Really, that's that's kind of what it came down to. It was just knowing about it because my babysitter. And then it just so happened coincidentally that it it was the school that was the number one school for the field I wanted to go into. Okay, now this is fascinating because number one, most people say, oh, I want to be a doctor. And number two, you don't just wake up and say, I want to go to Cornell, so therefore I'm going to apply and I'm going to get in. Okay, so let's, <laughs> let's rewind the tape. Yes. Put down for the folks that couldn't get into Cornell, and that would be me, okay? Yep. So let's, let's not be bashful about what it takes to get into Cornell. I'm oh, it, it was a lot of work. Don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. It was a lot of work. Again, I was but, in the top 10% of my class, okay? Yes. Smart girl talking to another smart black girl, but I couldn't just be like, poof, I'm at Cornell. Yes, 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 yes. So, I mean, it was it was hard work for sure, but I, I just think it's funny that that's like the connect the dots for me. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, I was a, a very high achieving student. I was the salutatorian of my high school, uh-huh. which I don't know, my class was maybe 300 plus people mm-hmm. or so. Athlete, played oh, piano, yeah. mm-hmm, flag football. So I had usually what the schools are looking for is, well-rounded, you know, kind of thing. So I had... Well-rounded means, because this is a big deal. Well-rounded. I played an instrument. I... um, instrument? Piano. And I did competitions and everything. So played piano, was flag football captain, and excelled academically. So with all of that, I just was looking into what I wanted to study. 
mm-hmm. looked into what were the top schools in that field because mm-hmm. nutrition was my main focus at the time and was going to be my vehicle to medical school. With so you oh yeah, yes, yes. I would say that's how it filtered down in my process of identifying where I wanted to go to school. Nutritional sciences, what's that about for you? Mm-hmm. At the time, I was really learning the basics, I would say, the foundation. I was, yeah, I guess the foundation is what I was learning in high school. You know, the main focuses are general topics. I didn't know specific specifics, but I took AP classes. So I knew about psychology, AP psychology. Mm-hmm. AP yeah. is advanced placement. Advanced placement. I would take Mary of one, but okay. Yep. <laughs> advanced placement psychology. Uh-huh. And through that, that pretty much solidified my interest in pursuing a professional degree mm-hmm. in psychiatry. Okay, but now, but see, you, you give me a twist there because I really want to understand nutrition because, you know, very few young Black students from urban centers will even say, think about nutrition. I mean, when I think about nutrition, I mean, my friends went into pharmacy, mm-hmm. but, you know, we kind of pharmacy, dentistry, you know, we were in Texas, so, you know, went into engineering. But nobody, you know, people thought about nutrition, you think dietary sciences, and that just wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was, yeah, yeah, totally. I was building a framework of understanding what a human is composed of, essentially. And so I wanted to study psychology, did the advanced placement courses. I realized, okay, if I'm going to go to school for seven years to be PhD clinical psychologist, I might as well be a medical doctor. That's almost the same time. And if I'm doing psychiatry, I'm getting to understand the psychology and then also prescribe medication. But the foundation of human composition, I guess is how I would describe it, is we are what we eat. And so nutrition was kind of my access point, or at least at the time I was thinking that I would learn about nutritional sciences, which many times can lead to psychological um, issues, if you're having micro or macro nutrient issues or deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I decided to go into, at least for my bachelor's degree. And Mm -hmm. then learning those complex sciences would also be helpful because I needed to do all my pre-med stuff anyways, which is organic chemistry and biochemistry and all of that, which nutritional sciences, you also have to take those classes. So that's kind of what I ended up, or that's not kind of, that is what I ended up doing. Your bachelor's in nutritional science. Correct. And I think, you know, and I'm glad that you're saying this because I went to the high school for health professions and they told us, you know, don't major in biology, you know, major in something that you love. So I was a mathematics major. And I tell students too, to look for something that will make you interesting. Yep. That when you come to interview, I need to, to think that I can have another conversation with you. And mm-hmm. so I think that that is a good department to explore. This one that a lot of people don't talk about. My niece, which is why I went to Cornell, thought about pre- being pre-med. And uh, she was agriculture mm-hmm. and uh, thinking also about veterinarian school. So that's why we went to Cornell. You all have one of the top veterinarian programs in the United States. Uh, but the idea that you saw that you, you could major in this science and get all of your prerequisites for medical school, 
and learn something that could enhance your practice as a physician. Mm-hmm. So tell me some things, I mean, because one of the things about the social determinants of health is food access. So tell me some critical things that you learned in undergraduate about nutrition and maybe a health disparities point. Wow, you're making me dig deep. That was a long time ago. (laughs) It was a long time ago, but um, unfortunately, some of the things that were that I learned then are still true now. Yeah, exactly. Um, There are food deserts, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes those food deserts are in places where people are of a lower socioeconomic status, and that just makes it harder for people to have a diet that is holistic, that is composed of all the elements of a a meal that someone should have. So fruits, vegetables, proteins, everything. Like if you were to pull up the recommended intake or recommended consumption for certain food groups, most people don't follow that. Not because they don't want to, but most people probably can't find three cups of fruits to have every day or even afford right now, especially with groceries being um, so expensive, most people are not purchasing that many produce items to last them a whole week, let's say of 20 servings of fruit or vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is a challenge. I mean, there are some social services that are in place to kind of assist with that, you know, like um, school programs or mostly school programs are the things I can think of. There is so much work to be done in that area of things so that everyone has access to food. Right. And and healthy food choices. Did you travel? Did you do like an um, a, um, overseas or international experience with the nutritional science event? No, I did not. When you say food desert, I was just talking to Nayo Kuwate. Uh, She's a professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers. And uh, we just discussed her book is called White Burgers, Black Cash. And she mm-hmm. does, she's done a lot of work on the history of fast foods in Black communities. There's a, and she gave me so many other sisters that are looking and exploring this issue. She basically debunks the idea that this was a demand issue, that that's what we want to eat. We want a whole bunch of fast food, junk food. We don't want nutritional stuff. And she's like, that is not true. And they, she also was able to explain that there's a book called, a book devoted to telling us how not to say food desert, but food apartheid, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. desert natural occurrence versus the apartheid, which is built on racism and mm-hmm. structural racism in a society. So there's a lot of work in this area about food and that connection of food mm-hmm. access as a, a way of structural racism, which you know is a problem that a problem in terms of, of medical issues. And so we leave Cornell and do we get straight into medical school? And what's the trajectory into medical school? Yes, so I, I did. I was going back and forth about whether or not I should take a gap year. Oh. Yeah. And so I chose not to. And just went ahead, took the MCAT. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, I had some services. I forgot what the name was called when I was there, but um, it was pretty much minority focused um, support Mm -hmm. for professional development. I think something I forgot the, the name of the program, but they were integral in helping me get to 
my interviews, um, they paid mm-hmm. for certain things. So I was able to do more than I would if I didn't have the, have the support. I applied to a handful of schools and I was accepted by October of my senior year of college. Wow. So I got an acceptance and I said, okay, great. I think I'm done. And so I didn't even finish out my interviews. I just got mm-hmm. my acceptance to FIU down in Florida, South Florida, mm-hmm. Miami. And because that was home for me, that was a good option. I knew medical school was going to be hard. So mm-hmm. doing it at home was going to be helpful because I could go home and get food if I needed. <laughs> so who's at home, you know, supporting you through medical school? Uh, so I didn't live at home, mm-hmm. but I was able to drive 45 mm-hmm. minutes, 30 minutes mm-hmm. uh, to my parents' house. That's nice. And they yep. were really proud of you. Yep. Yep. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have one brother. One mm-hmm. older brother. Yeah. So, you know, that's important to make sure that when you go to medical school, your support system is 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 there or you create a support system. I mean, that's just so important. I had to create a support system. So some of us are, you know, have to have to do that. But um, you know, there are people out there really pushing you along the way. So tell us about medical school. Was it, you know, just give me your 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 best memories and, and worst memories of medical school. What did, what did you learn? What's your thoughts along the way? Yeah, medical school was extremely hard. <laughs> extremely hard. Ah, that's not um, smart girl saying something got hard. Oh yeah. It I'm Cornell was hard too. That was that was hard. Yeah, Cornell was hard too. That that when I first got there, I immediately thought that I, it was a mistake. Hey, I should not have been there. Those classes were so hard. Everything was so hard. I was like, what's hard? What was hard? Was it the phone? Um, but now we're going back to Cornell. Now. Uh, yeah, we're we're going to come back to medical school, but okay. it, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. It um just, I did not feel like the things I learned in high school prepared me for the level of complexity and um, rigor that, that Cornell was bringing to the table. I just, it was a place where, for example, the test would be so hard that most of the people got a 30%. Why are they even giving us this test? Yeah. So I would be wondering, like, am I in the right place? Is this for mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. But, you know, after I got through that first year, which broke me, I was thinking of leaving and everything. But my, my support system, as you just said, is very important. And they said, no way, you're not leaving. So okay. I thought- support system at Cornell? What's, what, uh, you're a Black student at Cornell, this prestigiously- Ivy League campus. Where do you go for support? Yeah, so uh, I would say my my biggest support was, or is even now, is my parents because they're. I would talk to them. They would walk me through and just say, you know what, you got this, you got this. You cannot leave. Like you, you have to do this. But being there physically, I also needed some some people that I could talk to, be together with, and so I was able to to meet crew of people. Still, my sisters now. And we were real tight and we wrote it through the whole four years. Not all of them became doctors. Some of them were into other fields, uh, but we having them was um, so important for me to be able to continue to move forward. So yes, I, ma- I made some friends and if I'm sure if I did not have them, I would not have stayed there. Mm. But yeah, that was very important. And I would say same thing when, when I got to medical school, although it was just one main topic, one focus, finally getting to my goal of getting to medical school. Now it's like, this is so hard. 
Okay. <laughs> so much information and I'm getting, you know, a test every week or two weeks or whatever. It was just nonstop. It just felt like a hose. Mm-hmm. I had my family with me. I had my friends that I grew up with, essentially, although I was very busy. The times that I was free, I would reach reach out to them like my childhood friend, go hang out with her or whatever, just so I could kind of get a break from medical school or get a break from that sprint <laughs> and relax for a little bit. Uh, so going through medical school, I think every day I was, not every day, every week, I'll say, I was reminded of why I chose the school that I chose. And it was really primarily for support. Being at home was what I was going to need because there are times when you're just working so hard, you are so tired, you, you don't even want to cook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can just ride over, have some home cooked meals or just go hang out with my friends and get re-energized and then mm-hmm. jump, jump back into to school or clinicals or whatever I had to do. Okay. So you say from high school to Cornell, you felt like overwhelmed. What do you think in trying to grapple with the complexity and intensity of Cornell, were you able to tap in so that you can do the work and do the hours? And then then you go to another level, like shift gears, and then you have to tap in and say, I have the smarts to do this. What did you tap into to do those? Do, to, from high school to college, and then college, you said, I got another level up in intensity. Right. You're tapping into. I know what I did, so I don't want to, I don't want to out-talk mm-hmm. This is your thoughts. Yeah. The thing that I tell people, and I have also practiced this, um, but the analogy over time I've been able to really conceptualize is having a mirror is so important. And that mirror sometimes can be you, like you are your own mirror. Sometimes it can be another person. Because, for example, there would be times where I couldn't tap into anything because I was just so stressed, so overwhelmed. I don't even remember why or how I got to where I am now. <laughs> and so <laughs> I would be in those moments where I can't even sit back and say, well, hey, you did A through Z. That's why you deserve to be here. That's why you worked your, you know, you worked to get to where you are. You could do this. Sometimes I'm not able to say that. I can't even produce the self-affirmations or pull out anything. So if I get to that point, I gotta reach out to my my other mirror, which might be my parents which might be one of my best friends or someone else that I walk through the fire with. And, you know, they can look at me, make eye contact with me and say, girl, you can do this. We can do this. You got this. Okay. Tomorrow's another day. Let's keep it moving. And so that's what I kind of had to pull out of myself or help or get someone else to help pull it out of me Mm -hmm. so that I could continue to to move forward. So support is so, so, so important. What about mentorship? Mentorship too. And I would, I would count that, I guess, I don't know if I can call them mirrors, but maybe they can be like the light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Right. But I would speak to, you know, like maybe for example, my babysitter, right. Um, while I was in college, Mm -hmm. her, she made it, she's doing all these other things, right. That would be a light for me. What did your babysitter end up doing after she left Cornell? She moved to Japan for a little bit. I think it was Japan. She because she was in business, so she was fluent in mm-hmm. the language. Was mm-hmm. working there. I don't know if it was for like advertising or something like that, but mm-hmm. that's what she was doing. She was living her best life. 
you know, just seeing like, okay, she's making it, she's pulling it through. But even more so if I had people that were within my field doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. and talking to them and seeing them who made it through residency or, or made it through medical school residency and beyond, mm-hmm. just be a reminder to me that this is temporary. I'm going to get to the next thing. Eventually these step exams will be over. <laughs> and I can be done with this. There was something about Cornell that people comment on, and that is that there's a high rate of suicide. Is that true? Yes. I don't know what the rates are right now. When I was uh, in my freshman year of college, that was the year that they had the most suicides that they had ever had, I believe. And so because of that, they decided to put up fences, like a special... What? Uh, mm-hmm. Under the bridge. And so that was that was my freshman year that all that happened. How did that affect you? Did you want to run? Like, oh my gosh, where am I? I'm trying to think back to how I felt. That was in 2009, maybe. Mm-hmm. And when I first got there, there were no fences. There mm-hmm. were no nets. There was none of that. So it was, you know, you're just walking on these cliffs, essentially. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, it was beautiful. I didn't even know that we needed fences or nets or anything. So when it was happening, I think total, maybe there were nine that happened. And so they said, okay, no, we, nine in the span of a semester. Oh my God. There was one week where it was three. Oh my. I remember being in my class and looking out the window and seeing the ambulance and and hearing everything going because someone had just jumped. But I just remembered thinking to myself, how could, and I wasn't, wasn't a psychiatrist yet, but thinking how could somebody get to this point mm-hmm. being so hopeless that they mm-hmm. they check out? Mm. Yes, this class is really hard. Yes, I'm I'm so my grades are terrible. I've never had these grades before. And I, ooh, I, when I got so I was like, ooh, that's an L. Yeah, I was like, I'm 32. How did I get a 32 on this class? Exactly. It's like, yeah. I'm like, what? But at the same time, I could not personally think about ending my life yeah over, over that but many people do yes many people be, get so hopeless especially with that first experience of being away from home maybe the first experience of encountering a subject that's so hard for them that they can't pass so it, it does happen and and mm-hmm. I just remember thinking that and telling myself I'm not I can't get that hopeless mm-hmm. so, I have to make sure I'm talking to people mm-hmm did you continue your flag football and playing piano while you were at Cornell as well? No, I just used to practice sometimes in, in their, um, the practice rooms they had, but I didn't take any formal classes or anything after age 18. Okay. And flag football, I dabbled with maybe joining the rugby team, but then the amount of time it was going to take for me to study and do well, I just, I didn't, I didn't do that. Okay. Yeah, but in in medical school though, I did join the intramural flag football team, and that was a lot of fun. Okay, so yeah, you kind of have to do some physical activity. To, I, I highly recommend it in medical school to to blow off some steam and to and to work out. Um, now let me ask. So now we're in medical school. You know, you're you're got through your basic sciences, step one. Mm-hmm. And where are your clinicals in uh, Florida at FIU? Where are those clinicals held? What, what you so doing? all throughout South Florida, including. Broward County, Miami-Dade County, and some were even into Homestead. Mm-hmm. But essentially, that's, I'm going to say, maybe a 40-mile span. 
facilities that we would be in. Okay. And so your main hospital hub was what though? So we didn't have a main hospital hub. It oh, okay. Yeah, it was scattered throughout. So there was the Baptist Baptist Health System. Okay, yeah. We did Jackson. Let's talk about Jackson Memorial. So we know it's a major one, level one trauma center, mm-hmm. the hospital in Miami. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your rotations or any experiences there that you were so, like? <laughs> the only thing that I remember doing in the Jackson system, I think I had like an internal medicine rotation mm-hmm. there. And I also had at one of the other campuses, I had my OBGYN rotation mm-hmm. there. And then I also rotated out of Memorial Regional. Mm-hmm. This is where I did my trauma mm-hmm. rotation. And that hospital is connected to Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. So I was able to see Pete's trauma as well in those rotations. What is your recollection about your the pathology in terms of internal medicine during that time? Like during the time that I was training... And I was in San Antonio. So mm-hmm. because of that, I saw a lot of diabetes. I saw a lot of hepatitis, alcoholic-induced um, liver disease, end-stage renal disease. Mainly the diabetics uh, were, were very young and created a lot of vascular disease in that, that mm-hmm. population. That's also what I saw. And then I also was, I had, this is a wonderful opportunity that I was able to rotate at some of the community hospitals. Mm-hmm. So I also saw the many different levels of, of AIDS, essentially. Yes. Um, it's different and, stages of AIDS. Mm-hmm. I was in, forgot the name of that community hospital, but way down south. I was there for a, a little bit. And then I did my family medicine rotation mm-hmm. at a community mm-hmm. clinic. And there, each day, we would be seeing 40 patients. Mm-hmm. That were HIV positive? Um, not, no, it would be it would be a mix of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember how many patients total that I saw with HIV, AIDS. But generally, in that clinic, I was seeing 40 patients a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was for eight weeks that mm-hmm. I was able to work there. And so it was... Amazing to have these experiences. And then also working in the, the emergency room up in Broward, though, in the Broward mm-hmm. area. Being at such active hospitals and knowing that I was planning to go into psychiatry, mm-hmm. I feel like that was just an opportunity, just a great opportunity for me because I was able to see so much mm-hmm. then and learn those things and then be ready to, once I get to residency, pretty much. So when did you decide to be a psychiatrist again? In high school. In high school? Mm -hmm. And you kept it. So what was that decision about? That has to have a story. Yeah. So again, the advanced placement psychology, that was my true exposure really to Mm -hmm. even the field of human behavior and learning about different experiments that happened that were the like main, I can't even think of the word, but like Pavlov's, Milgram studies, like all these different studies that are out there that help us understand understand these things. Um, And so from there, I said, okay, I don't just want to be a behaviorist. I don't want to just be a clinical psychologist. I want to learn about the science so that I can prescribe medication and, and other things like that. And so that was the start of the psychiatry seed. And then I continued to water it from high school all the way through to the point of medical school. Even though I was exposed to everything, I still chose to do psychiatry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And anybody trying to say, oh, please don't do that, because they talk me out of it. I ain't going to lie to you. They're like, you don't want to hear about it. You do people calling you, and you're going to da 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 Yes, all the time. All the time. All the time. I mean, it's it's sad, because, you know, there's such a taboo, and there's stereotypes and all that. But they would say, they would say, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You have the mind and the ability to be like an ER physician, or you are able, you should do I am or whatever. They would kind of make it seem like, I mean, again, sad to say, but they would make it seem like I was wasting my abilities on becoming a psychiatrist. Well, this, yeah, and you're right. They Then they do discourage us from going into psychiatry and it's so mm-hmm. needed and you really have to stick to your guns. I mean, for a number of other reasons, I didn't do it. Um, I would say I wish that maybe I stuck to my guns, but I also mm-hmm. feel like I'm also utilizing a lot of my other talents, which do require me to have some aptitude for, you know, understanding people and their motivation and how to help them. But, you know, so so I think that it was so nice meeting you on your psychiatry rotation. And then, you know, your passion for psychiatry has just been, you know, it's, it just came through. So tell me, you joined the military at what point, and let's talk about, you know, what you've discovered as you become this psychiatrist. What has that been like for you? So I joined the military right after I received my acceptance from a medical school. I applied for the health professions scholarship program to pay for medical school in exchange for some service that I would give back. So four years of service that I would give back. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I completed medical school in the civilian sector. And then my time in the military wearing uniform started when I hit residency. And so what have I learned so far in psychiatry from the military perspective is, you know, I've learned so much. I would say the first thing when I hit residency was that I was not only learning to master my field, mm-hmm. um, psychiatry itself, but I was also learning a whole different language, culture, because the military is something on its own. When I started, I realized, wow, I'm now going to have to learn two different fields mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and make them make it work and mm-hmm. understand how this works. So I learned a lot. And with, with, Psychiatry, I mean, the whole for both things, but psychiatry and the military, the goal is wellness. That's what we're hoping for overall emotional, psychological wellness. And with the military, you're also making sure that individuals are fit to be in the military. And sometimes, if you have certain medical condition, you aren't fit to stay in because it's if you're not healthy, it's not going to be a suitable place for you to be. And so, as a psychiatrist, we are the guardians, essentially, um, and making sure that patients are at their best. And oftentimes, the military is not going to be a place where they're at their best. We help them. Transition. Exactly. Okay. So learning regulations and understanding where those decision points lie mm-hmm. was was a challenge mm-hmm. because I was also learning my field at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I'm more than halfway through my time, my initial time now in the military. And I I think it's going to give me a level of understanding of some things that if I would have stayed in the civilian sector, I would not have 
had exposure to understand. So trauma, mm -hmm. I'm getting to see trauma on a different level than what I would see in the civilian side. Well, when you say trauma, like, I mean, because we're not at war anymore. So you're talking about PTSD? Are you talking mm -hmm. about trauma? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not, not only combat, it can be psychological. There's other elements of trauma that um, individuals may experience. And I'm getting to see a different culture and understanding what this culture, which has subcultures, um, based on the type of work you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. I'm understanding what this might look like in the military. And when I get in the civilian world at some point, I'll have that skill set and I'll be able to continue to help that demographic of people. And you're so, right, because I mean, people forget that you're going to get out the military and mm -hmm. that experience doesn't leave you. And to have a psychiatrist that can understand that background or that history, you're a diamond in the rough out there or, you know, like a, a gem to find if someone mm -hmm. is is out and they can connect with you on so many different areas, particularly our black military population who become, you know, they go into the veteran system or just find you as a civilian. And that's a big need. I've gone through some studies now on, on some, um, some, on, a, on some work, health disparities work that I'm doing. And, you know, where we intersect, and my, my people say, why is she so interested in the psychiatry? You and I intersect in terms of anesthesia support in the ECT or electroconvulsion therapy uh, role whereby, you know, we help some of the sickest patients with this treatment uh, that has been found to get them uh, back functioning. I mean, so that is where, you know, anesthesia and psychiatry uh, worlds mm -hmm. uh, collide and we support each other more than collide. So not so much about the military, but what have you, what, what have you found like a disease that you want to just discuss that you've become passionate or interested in, in terms of psychiatry? Like what is one of so you take one or two that you say, this really intrigues me and this is what my thoughts are. People mm -hmm. need help. And I know we talk about depression, but, and we, you know, is it schizophrenia, is it bipolar, depression? Just give me your two and just, you know, kind of elaborate for us on what you've discovered. Even if you, you know, it doesn't matter that you're military or, or just a civilian, but just a psychiatrist. That is a very hard question. Ah. Yeah, I think that's a very hard question. And I don't know if I would pick any condition, if anything, the way that I would answer this question is what has been the most challenging area for many people? Um, I'm thinking through patients that I've cared for and the families mm -hmm. that I've worked with. And I would say the other aspect of that is just the element of understanding. Um, some of these conditions are very misunderstood. And so when you mentioned like schizophrenia um, or even bipolar disorder, those conditions, mm -hmm. people say those the names all the time because they're in the news or they're in, you know, TV shows and everything like that. But when you start to, if you have a family member or a friend that starts to develop some symptoms of these conditions, it can be scary. It can be scary because it's scary. new, you don't know what it is, you, you don't know what it looks like, what it means. You know the words bipolar schizophrenia, but you have no idea what this might look like. And for every single person, the condition can look different. And so I think that's the most challenging thing. Every patient that I see, even though I can use the DSM-5, the diagnostic um, book that we use to guide our diagnoses, 
even though I can diagnose the person with bipolar disorder, their bipolar disorder might not look like the next person or their schizophrenia may not look like the next person that has schizophrenia. And so it's hard. It's just, it's very hard for the, the patient, it's hard for the families to navigate what's going on. And I would say the most important thing is educating, educating not, not only the patient, but also the family so that people are aware of signs of things developing or symptoms of something developing so that they're not as scared, so that that element of uncertainty is no longer there. And hopefully there won't be that fear because now there's some knowledge about what's going on and there's some knowledge about what the treatment plan or the prognosis will be. But I would say education is the main thing that is key in the healing process, especially with some of these conditions that are severe. Okay. you. I mean, it's like, you know, all your education and you still say it's hard. Can you imagine people without an educational background yeah. understand, you know, a person's behavior? Okay. So let's, let's, I'm sure you've gotten asked about Kanye West. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was about to mention him, um, you know, especially now Free Britney, all these Okay. Right. That have been out there. I can't diagnose anyone because I've never met them. But I I can say, just generally speaking to the people listening out there, if you have a family member or a friend or even a partner and you start to notice that they have gone five days straight without sleeping, I'm talking not an hour, maybe, maybe an hour, but for the most part, for five days, all they had was hours sleep. During that time, they are talking nonstop, mm-hmm. started 10 different companies, different <laughs> pro- like projects. Mm-hmm. They spent thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're just trying to spend money or they run through money. Or, and sometimes they, maybe they're engaging in activities that they didn't, they wouldn't normally engage in. Maybe a lot of gambling, maybe having sex with a lot of different people, or just all of a sudden it feels like there's a personality change. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you might not see all those things at once. Mm-hmm. It might be the sleeping is the first thing. And then the next week it's something else. And it's just, mm-hmm. it starts to feel like this person is no longer functioning. Mm-hmm. Those are the signs that something is not right. And yeah. that is when you take your friend, family member, partner to the doctor mm-hmm. and let them do the the evaluations and determine what that is. So those signs that I just said, that could be bipolar disorder, that could be the start of someone losing touch with reality, or in other words, showing signs of psychosis. Or chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so those are all things that might be the beginnings of a condition unfolding in front of your eyes. What about schizophrenia? Mm-hmm. Schizophrenia. So some of the typical things to look for in the age for the schizophrenia could be 17 to the early 20s, right? Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the strangeness about those behaviors? So with uh, schizophrenia, and the thing that I will say is sometimes you can see the same symptoms shared between conditions. So I would just say in general, psychosis or psychotic symptoms. Basically, what that means is someone has lost touch with reality. Someone, Mm -hmm. that person is no longer to tell what's real and what isn't. 
So they might be seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there, believing things mm -hmm. that are not true or real. So fixed false beliefs, also known as delusions. Mm -hmm. um, and they might become withdrawn. Mm -hmm. They might become quiet, muted. We hear voices. Yep, sometimes that's, that's part of it too. Or they might become a little disorganized, meaning that they're not able to keep up with what they were saying, they might be talking about different topics that don't connect, mm -hmm. just something seems off. So all of those symptoms mm -hmm. can be present all at once and it could be a bipolar disorder diagnosis or it could be schizophrenia. Either way, they are falling under that category of psychotic symptoms. That's something that's very important and you said go see somebody, but we're having a, a, a shortage of you out there. Oh yeah. There's not a lot of like like if someone is having that and they think that they need to go to a lot of times, you know, we'll go to the our nearest friends or mm -hmm. you know, we go through all these ladders before, you know, we have to see a mental health provider. Oh. And then, you know, a social worker, counselor is not, you know, equipped to to handle full blown psychosis mm -hmm. or bipolar behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying, because sometimes it is you as the friend, the partner, the family member who's seeing them first mm -hmm. and watching these things unfold over a course of days or weeks, sometimes even months. Patterns, yeah. Because there's no, no one really can tell that the person's off until maybe month four. Sometimes it just takes a, a while for things to become extremely obvious to the point that the concerned family member or support individual realizes that immediate care or immediate evaluation is needed. So sometimes, yeah, we are the first people to see that our, our loved one needs some kind of care. And so if it's getting to the point of some of the, the things that we described, some of the symptoms or signs that we described, like the person not sleeping for days at a time, but that is a moment where going to the emergency room that might be the first access point where you're getting that evaluation and and the doctor can tell you whether or not mm -hmm. an, an uh, extended hospital stay is necessary. Because if it gets to that point where the person is, let's say, maybe not safe at home and they might not be safe at home because they're believing things that aren't really happening or they're not sleeping, which then is becoming a medical, actually physical issue for them they might need to have an extended hospital stay. And the best person to determine that would be the physician in the ER who then could connect you to the next level of care providers that might be needed, whether it's a psychiatrist or trained behavioral professional to help guide what the next step of treatment will be. But it it is scarce out here. It's hard. And, that's, and when I say hard, it, that's what I mean. It's like there's, it feels like you're lost sometimes. You might be with your friend or whoever and you're concerned about them, but you don't know even where to start. Mm -hmm. And so if you're seeing those extreme signs, that's immediate go to the hospital for an evaluation. If it's maybe not to those extreme signs, go to your primary care provider if you have one. Maybe you're you're starting to feel just a little sad. Maybe you are starting to feel a little withdrawn, maybe very anxious, maybe feeling like mm -hmm paranoid, someone's following you or something bad's going to happen, talk to the primary care provider. And sometimes they can 
at least give you some resources with who's the counselor that might be available or therapist, et cetera. Before we go, I'll have you talk more about, you know, the suicide crisis that we're seeing or, or hearing more about. Give me your thoughts on, you know, you said the hopelessness that people feel. What is your professional kind of thoughts on suicide and suicidality in a person? You know, like suicidality as a, what do you call it? Are we going to call it a disease or what do we want to call suicide? I would call it a symptom. I think there's levels to it. Levels to suicide? Yes, um, there's levels to it because sometimes uh, it may start as a just a thought. It might start as a, a thought of going to sleep and not waking up. Mm-hmm. It might be a thought of just death, morbid thinking of here's ways that I could die. It might start there where it's kind of low level. Maybe some things in someone's life are they're not satisfied with where they are, mm-hmm. whatever the reasons are that they start to feel maybe disheartened or hopeless. And they can start with morbid thinking. Then it can get to the point of now, it's not, it's not just death that I'm thinking about now. Now I'm thinking about actually suicide, which is I'm going to kill myself, which is very different than I just am going to go to sleep and not wake up. Just like a wish. I wish this thing would happen to me. Or I wish like a final destination kind of thing. Like I wish this happened, I would die. If you're going, if you're now to the point where you're thinking, I'm going to kill myself, there's levels to that too. You can be thinking, I'm going to kill myself, which is a suicidal thought, but you have no intent. You're not planning to do it. It's just a thought that's there. Mm-hmm. And you have no plan. You have no method of how you're going to do that. Then after that, some maybe life is getting worse. Nothing's getting better. You start to feel even more hopeless. Now it's not only just a suicidal thought of I'm going to kill myself. Now it's, I'm thinking about how I'm going to do it, where I'm going to do it. I have a method and I actually intend to act on this. So that's what I mean when I say there's levels and it might develop over time Mm -hmm. in relation to or in parallel with what's going on in someone's life. Whether there's loss, there's disappointment, Mm -hmm. something is happening in the person's life to go from no thoughts of death to now I don't want to live. So there's usually something there that mm-hmm. can be processed or um, identified so that the person can move beyond that place of hopelessness to hopefully rediscover their reasons for living and why they want to live and what they are hoping for in their life. Do you believe that it can be acute, like happen within 24 hours. Like, oh, yeah, yes, yes. Like, like, yeah. You know, because that's the thing that people are grappling with, with like Twitch, for instance, that it happens so fast, you know. We don't know that. It exactly, we don't know this. It, it, it assumes that we had an operation inside of his mind mm-hmm. or sometimes these, they call them the accidental overdose. Mm-hmm. I have to question at what point did it become a suicide mission? You know, I think that we even had that. Our it was a, a good comedian. Uh, he was in Mark and Mindy. I forget his name. It was so funny. Uh, what he, um, you know, decided to kill himself. So, you know, I think that's the thing that we struggle with: when the plan, the decision, you know, or when did the levels escalate? Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, oftentimes we we don't know the answer to that question. So, how do you feel about these these? If you and someone you love think about doing suicide, 
call 1-800-SUICIDE-PREVENTION-HOTLINE. You know, do you think that that's, those are effective? I mean, I think people don't have the timing. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you this when I got somebody who's, you know, thinking about this. Mm -hmm. What does that 1-800 number give us? So I think it's helpful because there are people, we, we don't know where anyone is in, in the process of what they're thinking, if they're maybe thinking about death, right, on the low level side, or are they planning and they already have things in front of them? We don't know. Or like you said, can it be acute? Is there someone that they just had this terrible thing happen, yeah. right? Impulsively, I never was ever thinking about death. I never was thinking to kill myself. But now that thing happened, now I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know where someone is and we can't prevent everything, which is the truth. So the, that phone number, people do call that line. They do. Okay. And they're in different areas of their life. It might be someone who's, they don't have anyone to call and they're just thinking about it or maybe, maybe they have a gun in their hand. Sometimes that happens too. And there's someone on, on the receiving end to, to talk to them. Mm -hmm. and help them do it. Mm -hmm. And thank you for that. The, the other thought is, let's be honest about the logistics of when you say that you want to kill yourself, or you have a problem in this 72-hour hold. Like in the civilian practice, we'll watch somebody for 72 hours and because we don't have a bed or mm -hmm. deem them not a threat and then they go out and hurt somebody or kill themselves, yeah. it's like we did everything. So... You know, in terms of your specialty, could you basically um, share with us some things that you wish were better or you could improve upon if you just, you know, could wave a magic wand? Yeah, if I could wave a magic wand, I would increase the number of personnel that are working in the behavioral health field. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have those new personnel now, I would employ them and deploy them to all the school systems so mm. that everyone has exposure to therapy and learning about emotional regulation and learning some of these things that should be foundational that we don't currently have in our school system. I would create a system where we have primary prevention, where we're teaching some of these things way early on so that we're not trying to pick up after ourselves after it's too late. That's kind of what I would do. And you mentioned like the barriers or, you know, some of the constraints given some of the legal challenges, like you said, a 72 hour hold, that's related to patient rights. And unfortunately, some cases we're not, you're not able to hold someone against their will. And if the judge or someone that's coming to evaluate them, they, they evaluate and they say, yep, based on what this person's telling me and review the charts, they're safe now they have to be released because patient rights exist, which is good for the individual because you don't want to hold people against their will. But like I was saying before, we can't prevent everything. So sometimes some people do get released maybe too soon and a bad outcome happens. And so I, if I had a magic wand, I would increase the number of personnel that are working in the field of behavioral health and prevent, hopefully, some of these bad outcomes by doing more of the work on the front end. So education. So you feel like we should have more mental health workers working in the schools. Mm -hmm. we, want, we want people in the 
everywhere, I think, in the schools for, for the children, because that will be part of development, but then also in college, in the workplace, in almost every single place where a human can be found, there should be a behavioral health support person. Schools do pretty good. And sometimes it's the first time that someone has access to mental health support. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's not enough of the counselors to really see the patient load or client load. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we all come from, especially, like you say, you grew up in Miami, and I'm sure you, you've grown up in this cross section of cultural differences and socioeconomic differences. Mm-hmm. How Haitians and uh, manifest anger and stress, you know, is very different than a native Floridian, Black Floridian. And then, of course, anyone from Africa or overseas, like like culturally, your specialty has to be able to, you know, look at a person, diagnose them, but also give, you know, some perspective to their what they're experiencing based on their culture. How, how do you handle that? Mm-hmm. So I really am patient centered and I have the patient educate me because I don't know what their experience is. I don't know what their culture is unless they tell me what exactly their background is or what exactly their practice is in a certain thing. Um, even even certain religions, I even say religion, but where they practice, it's a little bit different. And so I just let the patient educate me on whatever their background is, whatever their culture is, so that we can incorporate that into the understanding of what they've been experiencing. And then last, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave you with this hot button topic. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> and thank you for your time. But I can't let you go without you giving me your thoughts on this conversation that Black people don't like to go to the psychiatrist. Oh man, that's a hard one. And I mean, I guess it would be. There's probably so many different reasons or theories, I should say, (laughs) of where that comes from. And I would filter that down to fear. And fear is often related to uncertainty. Sometimes it's related to past experiences, which I will say is history. Mm -hmm. Um, So there might be some of those feelings because of those things, but hopefully, I hope Mm -hmm. that as we increase the conversations about mental health and about why it's important. If there are any people that are out there and they still have the the fear or that uncertainty about, well, is this really going to be helpful to me? Am I going to be able to find someone that's going to be able to help me? Hope maybe they'll start to think that there is someone out there that can understand them and can help them. I have seen, I don't know where, you know, this is the hot button topic. I don't know what the stats are about where that comes from. I don't know if it's just a thing that we say in our in our household or mm-hmm. you know, if it's related to that. The one fact I do know is that there's only 3% Black psychiatrists. And so maybe that's part of some of it too, is that some people don't want to see a provider because they're not able to relate with that person. And so that's a lot of a challenge too. So unfortunately, there aren't that many of us But I I hope that the folks out there that are practicing psychiatry that don't identify in a minority class or minority categorization, 
that they said the same answer that I just gave, right? Which is they're focusing on the patient, the, the patient educating them to help them understand what they don't understand about that patient's culture. And I, I can't speak for every psychiatrist. I hope that is how they're practicing. I hope they are taking classes and courses to achieve cultural competency because the reality is, is that every psychiatrist is needed and there's not enough black psychiatrists to see all the black patients that need to be seen. So I am hoping people will get past that fear mm-hmm. and step out and, and work with the provider that they are linked with if they're not able to find a, a black psychiatrist. Okay. I appreciate that. And I think that's something that, you know, is still being said in the community that we are afraid to go seek mental health, not just with a psychiatrist. But I also remember what Dr. Napoleon said, that once we're there, we're, we engage and, and, and talk. And I do believe that there's something to having culturally competent mental health providers. I, I do think there is a difference when you talk to a white provider or hear them talk about a certain patient and, you know, they kind of don't know where to put that cultural piece in there. Mm-hmm. But again, as a Black psychiatrist, you could have the same challenge if you're not relating to the person culturally, if they come from, you know, overseas or what have you. So mm-hmm. you, in fact, experience it. So I always like to say that, you know, we all have to get past some biases or also, you know, depends on who we're encountering to get to struggle to, to relate to someone culturally. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably have had that experience in your field because you have to do an, a history and physical. And then part of that, describe the, the person's home and background and, and understand that. So, you know, I thank you for what you do. I also thank you for your service to the nation. I could talk to you. We probably have a whole series on this. So I definitely want mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for that insight about uh, looking in the mirror for getting, you know, through school. That's uh, your thought along the way. Every person I've interviewed has their thoughts about what propelled them. So it's, I'm, I'm always interested in what that is or was. So any departing Thoughts, Dr. Freeman? Oh, you know, the last thing I forgot to mention is this website that I used when I was looking at what I wanted to be, because there might be people listening to this that eventually maybe they don't want to become a psychiatrist or become anything that I mentioned along the way. And an important website for me when I was in high school was the website for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I think it's bls.gov in high school. I just used to go on that website and just look at the different jobs and look at the stats, look at what you need, look at salary and everything. So I could learn about mm-hmm. what I would need in whatever field I was choosing. So just a plug for that, <laughs> someone who's out there that maybe they don't want to be in that we talked about, but just learning about what's out there, mm-hmm. getting, again, education is my thing. Mm-hmm. Get information, learn about it and kind of make a plan for what you need to do to be successful in whatever field that you choose and make sure you are putting in work to build those support system so that you have a mirror to pull you through when you start to doubt whatever plan you are um, embarking on. I think that's great advice and I'm going to let it end there. So thank you, Dr. Freeman. I sure appreciate your time this evening and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. What the doctor say?